You're listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Did you ever go talk to the counselor when you were in school? No. <laughs> like the school counselor? No. Not once. <laughs> I don't, I don't have any recollection of ever talking to the counselor. Uh, I was watching a movie the other day, you know, where they were, you know, the kid goes in and they're talking to the guidance counselor. And I was like, the guidance counselor? I never have a guidance. I mean, maybe there was. Oh, one I think there school, was. But I never even saw this person. What an easy job. <laughs> this person. Like, they got paid. I didn't even know they existed. <laughs> <laughs> What? I always, I always thought, you know, if I were a guidance a guidance counselor, I'd want to go in as a guidance counselor and just tell kids like, oh, you're never gonna make it. <laughs> well, them. yeah, because you want to be the inspiration when they like win a I Grammy. I want to be the inspiration you know? that when some kid wins a award, they stand up and say, I remember Mr. Smith. He told he me said I, I wasn't gonna be anything. And look at me now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, that would. I mean, that's. <laughs> I want to be Talk that guy. About That's how I want to be legacy, remembered. You know? <laughs> yeah, that could be my legacy. That look at all these kids that strived hard because, you know, I, I was kind of pushing them down and stepping on them when, you know, there when I was go. their guidance counselor. I think That's you might not have now. ever seen the guidance <laughs> counselor because you've never seen any counselor ever. Oh, no. I, I feel like I should now, you know, after having talked with Emily, I should really. <laughs> I'm sure that came out. <laughs> I made. Don't worry. I made up for it. I went to. I went to enough therapy no, for both of I us. Remember, yeah. Oh, did you? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I saw something that Steve Harvey said. That you know. So Steve Harvey was was talking about his his a uh, counsel. You know, guidance counselor that told him. You know, he was never going to be. You know, mount to anything and. You know, he had told this counselor that he wanted to be on TV. And she said, oh, you know, you're, you're never going to be on TV. You know, you know? so every year he said, yeah, I send, I send Miss Johnson every year. TV, every year to remind her of that comment. <laughs> and I thought, right, you know, the first year, that's yeah. kind of funny. You know, like, okay, that's, that's nice. And then the second year, okay, and there's another TV. <laughs> After about, what, seven, <laughs> eight, nine years? This one, now it's yeah, a little passive I think he's made his point. <laughs> like, now, now you're just being a jerk. <laughs> you're just sitting there on big screen TV shows to do something with. And they're not even worth anything anymore. You know, 20 years ago, that was, no, no, that was like, okay, well, I'll go sell it. For like $500. Yeah, now it's just spending the money. To well, speaking of therapy, me. our guest today is Emily Sanders. Uh, she is a licensed therapist uh, based out of Orange County, California. She's the adjunct professor in the human development and psychology department at Life Pacific College. She's been practicing for over 13 years, and she knows from personal experience the courage it takes to walk on the road of healing and discovery, works with compassion to support others on their path to restoration, empowerment, and fulfillment. Um, she, just even from speaking with her, has such a strong desire to support the family unit, um, whether that's through caring for the youngest members of the home or guiding couples to a closer, more satisfying relationship. So we talked about everything from overachieving to a fault, 
the therapeutic effect of sharing your feelings and experiences, uh, secure avoidant and anxious attachment styles, um, the value or lack of value of unsolicited advice, how that does not get taken, and the cautious selection that we should make when seeking who to take advice from. So I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. I know I learned a lot from talking with Emily. It felt almost like going to therapy. As always, I'm Sanger Smith with my dad, Sean Smith, and this is Decidedly. So, Emily, where are you, where are you uh, calling in from? Are you in uh, California? I am, yes. I'm from Orange County, and I practice here in Newport Perfect. Beach. Yeah. Now, how, how long have you been doing psychotherapy? Um, good heavens, 13 years now. How did you decide to get into that? Both, both of my parents are in that field. Oh, are the they? Way, Interesting. They, they kind of got through it where the circuitous route. But uh, how did you, how did, what's your story? Well, I kind of fell into it. Um, my parents are also in very public service roles, but more in nonprofit vein. And I was really raised to be a wife and a mother, and nobody ever asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. We had no conversations about college, um, but I did end up making my way and earning my bachelor's in my last year of school. I thought, you know, I think I'd be a good counselor. I had no idea what in the heck I was getting myself into. <laughs> you know, I applied to one graduate <laughs> program and <laughs> I got in. And I remember though that first week or two, sitting there in school and it was like fireworks went off inside. It was, it just is the field for me. So I guess I followed my intuition and also I feel like I lucked out a little bit. So I love oh, yeah? what I do. Yeah. I so feel like much. that's the story yeah. with a lot of therapists. That's, that's Sean's parents story too. They both kind of just randomly in their forties decided independently of each other. Oh, okay. I guess uh, th- th- this seems like a good fit. Yeah, it was it was way too late to benefit me personally. It benefited me not at all. Only I probably gave them more insight on what they should have done differently. Uh, yeah, Perhaps they realized, oh, that's why he that's why he's so messed up. Yeah. Right. So, oh yeah, me and my husband we think so. Should we save for college or do we save for therapy? You know what? That's a I, I've never had that thought, that question. I am not, I'm going to unironically um, bring that up to clients moving forward. Yeah, you get two options yeah. here. You, you can save for something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. Saving for right. something's probably a good idea, but you know, how confident yeah. are you that they're uh, making it with, with no therapy needed? I didn't. How does somebody decide that they even want to go talk to a psychotherapist. But what is that triggering event that you've seen or what is the precipitating event that, that causes people to say, I want to go talk to Emily. I want to talk, talk to somebody like that. Sure. And there's a variety of reasons. Obviously, there are some people who just really are curious about themselves and curious about life. And so they come in because they want to learn more about themselves and understand themselves better. But by and large, a lot of people do end up coming to therapy because of a tragedy or a personal crisis or a set of mental health symptoms that are um, new to them. I know that you, uh, a lot of your listeners are leaders or business owners and uh, individuals that are very high performing. I find that they tend to come in 
Um, and this is an overgeneralization, but towards the tail end of their 30s, their 40s, and a lot of times they are finding that they are anxious when they have never felt anxious before, or they're having panic attacks, or they're facing burnout. Um, and so many of them have been able to truck through and plug on in life and follow a course they've set for themselves. And then all of a sudden feel themselves kind of astounded to be struggling for the first time in their life, in their That's awareness. interesting. What is, what is, uh, what's typically causing that? Well, that depends that, that on change. the person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That depends on the person. For a lot of individuals who are very high performing, they are able to um, streamline their life in a way where they're able to zero in on business and performance and meeting goals. And unfortunately, a lot of the cost has come at the expense of themselves, where they're yeah. able to turn down the dial on themselves personally to be able to ignore the feedback that they're getting so that they can keep performing. And on one hand, that's beautiful. That's that's wonderful. That allows them to achieve. And yeah. also, there's a cost to it. And a lot of times the cost bubbles up a little later on in life. And so a lot of people who come to me uh, say, well, I've never felt anxious before. I've yeah. never had a panic attack. I'm, am I breaking? And it's the first <laughs> time that really their symptoms yeah. are, are pushing through to a level that they're not able to ignore for the first time. And actually, when we sit down and do some digging, turns out they have felt anxious before and didn't know that's what it was. Because ah, so, they're so able to go right back to this, um, right back to work. Right. Yep. And, push and have that fill that hole and push it down. Mm-hmm. There. Are, yeah. So, so do you think that it's it's sort of the cumulative effect of sort of pushing away the social feedback that people are getting? In other words, if I'm focusing on my business, I'm focusing on high achieving. I, I'm probably getting some some cues from my social circles that I'm ignoring because I'm just I'm focusing. I'm single mindedly focusing on these these things of you know that I'm wanting to achieve goals that I'm wanting to achieve. And do you think it's the compounding effect of these things sort of building up over time and eventually the dam's going to break? Or is it just a maturation process where somebody is becoming now more self-aware, more, more conscious of how do I create more self-improvement that they may not have been aware of in their 20s and early 30s? I mean, it could be both, really. Um, a lot of times, oddly enough, you know, you were referencing the social feedback from individuals and most people, at least in a high achieving person's life, uh, often their closest friends and family don't realize they're struggling until the dam fully does break because they are so good at conducting themselves and showing up professionally. Um, They're seen as being the strong person. They are the givers. And so it's not uncommon for people in their closest circle to even be be shocked that the individual is struggling. So I've seen that, you know, professionally as a financial advisor, you know, and I've been doing this about 32 years. And one of the things that I have seen is some of that phenomenon where people will come in and there are people who have been financially successful. Uh, Those are typically the people that, that come see me. And yet at the same time, there will be, and primarily it's the husband in the relationship who doesn't want to relinquish control. There's mm-hmm. this reluctance to say, I've been successful. I've been doing things well. I don't want somebody else taking over what I've been doing historically, the investing or the uh, fund allocation towards goals or prioritization, those types of things. 
And do you see that in the same case where somebody is high achieving? They say, hey, what I've, what I've been doing is working. Maybe I don't, I, I, I don't want to come talk to somebody about these struggles, or I don't want to reveal to people that I even have this weakness. Mm-hmm. And it's not. You know, they want to seem invincible. Yeah, and it's not uncommon. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I hear uh, somebody say, well, I, I don't do good asking for help, or I, I can't ask for help. Um, and even the need for me not to see them as too weak or whatnot. Um, so yeah, it's it's a real act of courage for many, especially high achievers to come and say, hey, something's not working for me. And mm-hmm. to make matters worse for many individuals who are very high achieving, very high success, in some ways they have learned that their anxiety is also their fuel. So yeah. to relinquish anxiety, they... If they are not anxious, they feel that they will become complacent. Yes. They fear becoming yes. complacent. I, I, I have shared that with my friends before where I was like, I was talking with a, a group of other business owners where we get together each month and kind of just talk about our issues, uh, talk about our successes and in an environment where we know that we're talking with people who relate to us. And I was kind of working through this internal problem one time saying, I cannot escape this anxiety. Like the only thing that will make it go away as if I just dive in and like take on a new project, you mm-hmm. know, work super hard, work long hours, you know, like, and when I do that, I feel good. I don't feel bad. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't do, I don't work till 10 PM and go, Oh, this stinks. I really hate this. I'm so anxious working till 10 PM. No, I go, I'm working to 10 PM. This is super fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said to them, <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm <laughs> loving this. And and one of my friends asked me and they go, oh, are you scared that if you solve this anxiety that you won't be productive anymore? And I said, yep, mm-hmm. that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Mm. So you're, you're seeing that the anxiety is, is sort of your fuel. Is that kind of it, it motivates you because you're well, I think Emily, you don't want to be not nervous about it. I, I know that for me and, and for some, for a lot of my friends, that is we're at least aware that that's what motivates us. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like I know that if I, I have this deep, I, I'm always thinking I'm not doing enough. So the only way to not think I'm not doing enough is to just do more. Do more. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then, do I'm done, and then right. I've done more. And then everyone goes, oh, you're great. And I go, you're lying to me. And I go back mm-hmm. and like, no, you're not. It's not good enough. It's still not good enough. It never is good enough, but I keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I had some of the same issue on, you know, finding fuel for, for work. Mine, mine was, you know, might've been a bit negative, but I remember growing up that a lot of the, uh, the social circle that I interacted with, I felt like, and this may not have been true, came from more financial success than, than I did. And so that became the fuel. I said, I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to be successful. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to achieve. And that became my fuel, this motivation, this competitiveness uh, that may not have been ultimately healthy, but I found that fuel. And I I guess, is that normal, Emily, that that these types of fuels, you say, well, I I don't know that I want to fix this. 
Well, there, you know, kind of like what Sanger was Yeah, saying. there's a lot of fear of letting go. I think if we could put that in a nutshell, there's a fear of releasing some anxiety. And on one hand, um, bits of competition can be healthy. But a lot of times when there's competition involved, there's often a threat of a sense of self. Hey, there's enough room for all of us to be successful. We can all have a lot of money. We can all achieve. We can all perform. Um, and so there is a lot of fear of being beaten or someone doing better or especially in the corporate world, too. There's a this kind, it can be kind of savage. Um, and so there's always somebody jockeying for a position that and um, so, yes, to relax or to be able to find that calm and not work from an anxious place can be really challenging. And again, it is kind of perceived as a threat. Because a lot of times when I have clients who say, well, do I keep working myself to the bone or do I just become complacent? It's There's no middle ground for them. It's either that they have to work themselves exhaustively to continue to achieve. And if they aren't working themselves to the point of exhaustion, then it must mean that they are becoming complacent or somehow going backwards. And that's the piece that has to be tweaked, that it's not so black and white. So how do we overcome mm -hmm. that? Because I, that resonates with me a lot. Mm -hmm. Like I, I think about, I, th I have that conscious thought once a month at minimum where I think, okay, well, I could relax. Mm -hmm. And then this is the long list of everything I'd be giving up. How would I ever become, how would I ever meet that next goal? How would I, I wouldn't have done this thing that I, I've, I've, you know, that I like, you know, um, I wouldn't have had this positive outcome. Um, and I think about like, oh, what if I just took it easy, work seven, eight hours a day, you know, 40 hours a week? No, no, I don't want that. <laughs> like Do I want to be lazy? <laughs> like, yeah. like a loser? Yeah. No, I mean, like, like a loser. <laughs> yeah. And I, I obviously people make it work. And and I have friends mm -hmm. who who are wildly successful and they probably work 20 hours a week. So, you know, they're just just different, but I can't you can't mm -hmm. see it. Mhm. Mm yeah. I mean, there's there's definitely something to be said about where these goals and ideals were created. I've had many people who sit down and say, OK, I, you know, decided when I was a teenager that I was going to go get my bachelor's and then I was going to get a graduate degree and I was going to get married somewhere within there. And I needed to have a child by the time I was 29. And then my dream job is this by 31. And there are a lot of people that plot their course and they plot their course when they're very young. And they hold to it very rigidly. They keep their head down in life yeah. and they just plug through. And all of a sudden they pop up when they've achieved all the things they've wanted. And they think, how did I get here? And why did I get here? Is Do I even like this life? And, and so there's something to be said about creating some space to understand why do I do what I do and allow ourselves to be curious about that. And there are some things that inevitably we're going to want to keep. And there's going to be some things that we want to readjust and to change. And there's something to be said about as we are moving through life and aging, do we allow our goals to mature with us? Do we allow our relationships to mature with us? Are we forcing ourselves to wear the same pair of pants that we purchased as a ninth grader? Well, they don't fit so well when we're 40. Yeah. So, you know, even creating space to reevaluate goals and what's important and priorities is so crucial. And also, why? 
Why did, why were those things so important to us? And what do they say about who we are? And there's something to be said about detaching who we are and our worth from the things that we do and achieve. And it's very challenging to do, especially if our worth is so dependent on our achievements. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. Singer, Singer probably had that thought imposed on him by his parents. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say that. <laughs> I was going to say that regardless of whether you brought it up. You like I <laughs> you you saying that Emily it reminded me um I was on vacation in Colorado last week and actually met a woman named Emily we were at the um hot springs um just hanging out in the pool and um started having this conversation with this woman who had just moved out into the middle of Colorado in the mountains um living in a like a RV on this piece of land that she bought and um I guess I had assumed like, oh, this is someone who chose this lifestyle came from a background where that was maybe encouraged or this was a step up from the background that she lived in. And I was still measuring it in like as far as um, monetary success, maybe like, oh, well, if you were going to choose that lifestyle, you you either grew up poor or you grew up in the van life mm. uh, either way, like that's the only way you could see that as an option. And um, turns out she she grew up um, in a very wealthy family, had a like a very high paying corporate job in California um, and just decided that that's what she wanted to do. And we were talking about that. And she said, yeah, it was actually really a struggle because um, my parents didn't understand. And that was really hard for me. And I was like, oh, well, like, what do you you know, what do you mean by that? She goes, well, it wasn't just hard because they didn't understand. I didn't even understand half the time why I was doing it. And she said a phrase that really stuck with me. Mm. She goes, when you grow up in a traditional success pipeline, moving out of that can be really challenging. And I thought, uh, I thought, I mean, I, I don't know what her parents specifically imposed on her, but I know due to no fault of his own, I imposed upon myself the values and the success that I saw Sean have and say, oh, well, that is what I have to do. And there used to be things that I would say out loud. There were goals that I would tell other people I had, like it, by this age, I'm going to do this. By this age, I'm going to have this. And the more I thought about it, all those were we're just looking at whatever Sean had done and then moving it one step above. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> just, I have to be, I'm gonna, I'm gonna yeah, I have to be making this bit. amount of money by the time I'm 40. I'm like, why did I pick that number? Oh, it's cause <laughs> you know, that's why I picked that number. So it was yeah. totally imposed. Yeah. There are some kids that are raised in homes where the goals are very explicit and very high. And so children know, I I have to achieve very big things. There are other homes, though, ironically, where kids can see that they're high-performing parents or there's a lot of high-performers around them, and parents say, oh, well, just do your best. And they think, well, I don't know what that means. What do you mean my best? And so implicitly, (laughs) if you think this is my best, then to be safe, I'm going to ratchet it up and I'm going to take it, you know, a foot higher just to make sure that I, I cover all of my bases. So there are some some individuals for whom their very high goals were explicitly given to them. 
Yeah. And there are others that it is very self-imposed. And Sean never, never imposed. You never imposed that on me. He never told me I had to do anything um, specific. I don't think you really told me like you have to do this. Otherwise, you're like life's a waste. I mean, one thing that was funny that is anytime I would consider like, you know, growing up, there were conversations about what I wanted to do. Right. Um, oh, well, you know, Sanger, what do you what do you want to do? Oh, I want to be a poet. Oh, well, good luck making money. That was your favorite, <laughs> your favorite line. Well, it's, now, it's, okay. hard, it's hard to escape the framework of financial advisors. You know, that's what I do. That's, that's I don't the blame lens you. I'm look through. I don't blame you. I mean, probably wouldn't have had a great successful uh, career doing that. Um, there's a lot of things that I probably wouldn't. I want to be a baseball player. Okay, good luck making money. Um, you're probably right, you know. It seems like relationships, just as humans, relationships is is going to play a big role in a lot of the issues that might cause us to seek therapy, whether it's an existing relationship, I have a problem with my marriage, or I have this problem with myself because of the relationship yes. that I had with my father or whatever. Um, yes. What do you think is the 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 worst decision that people make within relationships that causes them to have problems? Well, I, I think a broken picker is one of them. Unfortunately, you know, <laughs> it just is the truth because we can have all these lovely ways that we want to show up in a relationship. But if we are showing up to try and bring love or compassion or partnership to somebody that does not want that or is not safe or they don't hold our same values um, or they belittle I mean, there's there's not a whole lot of work that can be done there. So for some individuals, they're coming in and we're trying to even evaluate, is this the right relationship? Is this, can you be a healthy version of yourself within the context of this relationship? Um, and if so, then how do we change what you bring to the relationship and what you ask for and, and boundaries and all that good stuff? It, by and large, though, I would say that there's quite a split in humans where there is a set of people that tend to stay in their relationship too long. Yeah. And there is a set of people that tend to leave and run from their relationship too soon. Mm. What is there a difference in personality trait that causes that? Or is there a difference in life experience that causes that? Mm -hmm. There can be. In general right now, there's so much talk in pop psychology about attachment. Um, yeah, is that yeah, a word yeah. that is familiar? Yes. And, I see that. And, that's like on my algorithm right now on yes. everything. And, and as it ought to be, you know, 20, 30 years ago when we were going to therapist school, attachment was just starting to emerge as something that was extremely crucial and understanding how does somebody's attachment affect their self-image, their self-worth, and also the way they're able to show up in their relationships. So for individuals who are more anxiously attached, they tend to hold on to a relationship too long. And for those who are avoidant, meaning they struggle with intimacy, they tend to bounce too early. So... And for those who do not understand what attachment is, we're talking about the relationship that is formed with a primary caregiver. And we're looking at attachment being developed and shaped 
primarily between the first three to five years of somebody's life. And if mommy, because more often than not, it is mother, but if the primary caregiver meets the child's needs consistently, they become securely attached, meaning, hey, I'm worth loving. If I need help, then I know that I can go out into the world and get help. I'm lovable. Hey, if we have a little one who sometimes the primary caregiver meets the needs and sometimes they don't, there's this anxiety constantly going up and down in the child of there's no consistency. I don't know what to expect. So these anxious individuals get into relationships and they koala bear and they hold on too tight because they don't want to lose a good thing and they're terrified. And then we have people whose primary caregiver really didn't meet any needs, especially emotional needs, right? Because there's a difference between giving a kid a sandwich and a Band-Aid and also helping a kid to comfort themselves and soothe and whatnot. And so more avoidantly attached people say, hey, screw it. Why would I let you in? I've learned I can only count on me, myself, and I. And so those individuals tend to uh, withhold in relationships. And so if something goes slightly askew or they feel smothered, they'll just leave. So, mm. And that can yeah. happen due to no real fault or malice on the part of the primary caregiver, right? Oh, there are, listen, there are very few parents who make it their mission to make their child's world hell. Most parents are very (laughs) well-meaning and they're doing the best they can. There are some that are very explicitly cruel and, and unkind and out to harm their kid, but they have very severe mental health issues. Most parents are very well-meaning. They're giving what they received. So there's a lot of tension there, right? Because so thankful to parents for doing the best they can. And nobody walks away without any little nicks from childhood. So when it comes to these attachment styles, do people ever bounce back and forth between those two? Um, Not necessarily. There are some people who we would say are anxious avoidant. And so they have pockets of both within them. But we have one primary attachment style, um, but we can show and exhibit behaviors of other ones. But we have one primary attachment, and that really shows up most heavily in our relationships between us and the parent and us and our partner. So our attachment gets most heavily transferred from our parent, and then our partner becomes, you know, that attachment figure that gets yeah, transferred. Okay. Yeah. So when 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 we identify that within ourselves, I say, oh hey, you know, I'm securely attached. That seems like of the three, you got secure, anxious, avoidant. If I'm anxious or avoidant, I, I don't want to be that. I don't want that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So secure, great. I no work to be done. I'm good. I'm. It's all. It's all rosy. If, you, if you're an anxious attachment style or avoidant attachment style, what decisions can you make to improve that experience for yourself, but also improve it for your partner? Mm-hmm. Yes. I Well, I appreciate that you talked about that in referring to a partner. We also have the ability to love and soothe in spaces that are hurting. When we enter into a partnership, we have our own mess. Our partner has their own mess, and then we come together to co-create mess. 
And so one of the biggest gifts that we can give to ourselves and our partners, understanding what is the trash that we are bringing into our relationship and what kind of trauma does my partner have and how does that interact with each other? And that's a lot of what couples work is, right? Is understanding how does my partner's experiences and their aches and pains affect them and the way that they're able to show up in the relationship with me. And our relationships can be a source of great healing for one another. You know, it's not our job to heal our spouses or our partners. However, for individuals that are are starting to understand what attachment is and that it, you know, plays a big role in their life, they can do some reading on different attachment styles. The book Attached is a great one uh, to read. Um, and so they can start to be curious about themselves. They can start to be curious about what needs were met um, or not met by their yeah. parents growing up. Um, I mean, that's a great starting point. So one of the, the main questions that I will always ask anybody that I'm working with towards the start of therapy is, hey, when you needed help or when you were upset, who did you go to? And so it's interesting for me to hear, did somebody even bother going to ask for help? And if they did, who did they go to? And what was that experience like? So that tells me a lot about a person and how they approach relationships now. And so I, I'm assuming there's some people that say, I didn't go to anyone. No one. Yep. A lot of people. I went to my mm -hmm. friends or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or I hid in my room or I created a fantasy world or I read or I did sports or I what's cried. The, what's the most common answer you, you get? Um, a lot of people say no one. A lot is of that, people say no one. Is that real or is that because we can't remember? Because um, that was my first. I think it depends. I think it depends on the person. And so a lot of times I will tell someone, hey, just take a moment to think about it. And a, it makes most people a little bit uncomfortable to answer. There was a lot of us that we really want to protect our parents and we don't want to put our parents in a bad light. Um, and then for other um adults, they're reflecting and saying, hey, I got to be close to my parents by asking my parents what they needed. And so we we learn how to create intimacy Sorry, in all different Dad. kinds of ways. <laughs> I, I didn't do that. Yeah. Never happened to me. <laughs> but I actually think that that is a good thing. That is a good thing because that would be a, a reversal of roles, right? It would be Sean's job to pay attention to Sanger not Sanger paying attention to Sean as a way to be close, right? So we're just paying attention to how we connect and um, to other people. Does it feel safe to go and ask for help? And a lot of this does to bring it full circle to the start of our conversation. If we're talking about leaders or business owners, what did yeah. what was their experience like growing up? Did they feel comfortable <clears throat> asking for help? Did they get made fun of for asking for help? Did they get told, well, you should already know that? I feel like a the, lot of mm -hmm. a lot of leaders, um, especially men, have a really tough time, like Sean was saying, asking for help. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I I try so hard to be aware of that um, because I see it as um, I see it as a professional. I see it when, mm -hmm. when I mean, naturally people are coming seeking for something from us um, sure. as, as in an advisory role. Um, and if I frame it too much like help, there's certain men 
especially that are gonna nope don't need your help and and i get that because i've had that Mm -hmm. feeling as a man and that's a it's a human feeling i guess to be to have maybe this identity that i can solve my own problems or or ego that says that i don't need anyone um what what decisions can can people make when they're struggling with that to to improve mm-hmm. well they can reframe it as not going to ask for help but they can think about it like hey i'm going through something tough it'd be nice to have someone listen to me i love how you mentioned that you you have a group of individuals that you meet with that you talk business stuff with you have people that you can relate to Um, that's really important for other people. For many leaders, do they even have somebody that can relate to them? Do they even have a colleague that they can go and speak with? Do they have uh, a a business coach that they can talk with? Can we even just get somebody talking, even if they feel they are too intimidated or don't need a therapist or professional help? Can we just get somebody talking and for some that's already a big enough challenge i I have found that most of the successful business owners and leaders that i interact with are in some sort of coaching relationship where they've they've got somebody they can go to Mm -hmm. and bounce ideas off of or Mm -hmm. somebody they meet with regularly to discuss you know growth ideas and things like that Mm you know, we don't call it therapy, but I bet there's got to be some component. It feels like therapy. Is. Coaching is therapeutic. Yeah. It's not therapy, but it is therapeutic. Absolutely. No, that's a good mm-hmm. point. Yeah. Yeah. My my loneliest days are about three days before my monthly uh, forum meeting. Those are the worst oh, days because really? it's been the Wait, longest the longest it's, stretch. it's been the longest stretch between oh. since I've ha- been able to like be heard. And then once I get like within two days, I'm like, oh, okay, it's, it's like right around the corner. Oh yeah. My, my group that I'm in decided to take off for the summer. How no. three, three months. And I was like, Oh, this is not good. Yeah. Two of us met uh, and, and just kind of said, Hey, let's, let's get together and go through some stuff. Just mm-hmm. kind of share. And I gotta have it. I gotta have yeah, it. You really do. If for no other reason, helping to organize your own thoughts and, and there's, yes. the, there's a process, I think that is, Emily, as you said, it's therapeutic to be able to verbalize, Hey, here's what I'm feeling right now. Here's what I'm thinking right now. Here's what I'm going through. And as you say it out loud, mm-hmm. a lot of times things resolve themselves. You, you know, I, I've found that as I say things, I'm like, Oh, you know, that's what I should do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm answering my own question. Yeah as I'm vocalizing Mm -hmm. it. Yes. And I think for some, if you know, you have any leaders or business owners that are listening to this podcast, I would really encourage them to consider therapy as a space where they can untangle some of their thoughts. Um, Ideally, if you are going for therapy, you are not going to get explicit advice. The therapist ought not be telling you this is what you should do. There may be some very select moments, especially if we're talking about parenting or how to handle a particular marital issue where more explicit advice would be warranted. But in general, it is a space for you to untangle your own thoughts, organize your thinking, reflect on your experiences, and you have a sounding board to help you create and um, to contemplate more efficiently and more quickly, really. 
Yeah, I'm so glad you mm-hmm. said that because it, it, I feel a lot of times like um, what we do as advisors, it's clearly not therapy, mm-hmm. but it, it's in, a, in that advisory role, which is really similar to a therapist or a counselor. And I, I have that experience where people will come and I barely know their name. Like, I don't know nearly enough about them to give them any advice. They go, oh, so what should I do? Well, oh, geez. Like, I, I just showed up. Yeah, you know more than me. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know anything about you. And, and I, I would imagine that happens so much, even more often mm-hmm. for you, because there are same, some things that I certainly can give advice on. Oh, don't buy that. You buy that. Don't mm-hmm. save there, save there. And that that maybe they would mm-hmm. not ever be able to untangle for themselves because they don't know the rules of the game. They don't. That's why you know we study what we study. But in the therapist role, I, that has to happen so much, right? Where people yeah. come mm-hmm. and just say, hey, "Hey, anyway, so five minutes in, Emily, um, should I uh, should I get back together with my ex or <laughs> whatever it is? Solve my problems. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The reality is, is that a lot of people know what they ought to do. It is understanding why can't you do that thing? And I'm Mm. sure you have to even bump up against that in the financial world where there are certain decisions that you can say objectively, this makes sense. Financially, this makes explicit sense. You are going to have good gains, but the individual is resistant. And there are some times when you think this, this is odd. This clearly makes sense on paper, but they are pushing back. There's a lot of emotion in money. And yep. so there are probably moments when you bump up against somebody's emotional stuff that they can't even articulate that prohibit them from making a good financial decision. The same thing is true when I'm sitting there in therapy. A lot of times people know what they ought to do, but why can't they get themselves to that place? Okay, I know I shouldn't stay with this individual that hits me, but but I can't seem to leave. Or I, I know that I probably should do this, but I can't. And it, it's understanding that why, what's going on for you. Yeah. And so sometimes, yeah, we, we need some help untangling. It seems like lock in there. That, that's really important for, for any true meaningful growth is to be very mindful of the advice that we're soliciting. I, I saw this, um, uh, I think it was a preacher on TikTok. I wish I remembered his name. And he said, is that what you watch your preachers on TikTok? <laughs> yeah, that's what I watch. I watch like a lot of preaching on TikTok. Yeah, it's not 40, always preaching. A 40 second sermon, Sean's a lot easier yeah, to tolerate than 40 right. minutes. Yeah. So you go to church. I get a lot of theology on TikTok. I'll have you know. Okay. All right. There's Just like all my clients stuff. get their mental health advice. You know, on you know where I get my entire? I read the Bible. God. <laughs> God. Uh. <laughs> Like a good Go ahead person. With your little yeah. Okay. Whatever. Go ahead with your little TikTok. Yeah. Right whatever. Here. Anyway, so this guy I met at a coffee shop. Is that better? Um, he said something that resonated with me, and it was, um, you know, I, unsolicited advice never gets taken. So he never. says, as a preacher, people will come and say, "Hey, what?" You know, da, 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 da. and he says, "I'm not going to say anything until they ask." And I thought, okay, that's good for sure because a people in positions of power, whether it's a therapist, a financial advisor, a preacher, um, you know, boss, parent, um, it's really easy to like maintain that position of power and that dynamic in all interactions within that relationship. And when people come talk, go, Oh, 
boom, here's advice. I'm a problem solver. I have, we have this power dynamic here. You should totally do this. And people are never going to do it. Beyond that, beyond not giving unsolicited advice, sometimes people seek, they solicit advice when they shouldn't. Um, what can those people do? Is there anything that we can do, um, any decisions that we can make to be more mindful about the advice that we get? There's something to be said about having wise people in our life that really know us, that can act as a buffer of sorts, right? That can speak into our life and give us sound feedback. And also being able to trust ourselves that first and foremost, you know, that we run it through our own personal filter. And there are many people that do not trust themselves enough and are highly dependent on advice. And it's something to be said if individuals find that they're basically taking a poll whenever they have a decision to make, that they'll ask the postman what they should do, their barista what they should do, their pastor what they should do, their neighbors what they should their do. Their Instagram that, followers. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> that that ought to serve as a check that somebody's self-esteem or their self-confidence obviously is not what it needs to be to be able to move efficiently. Um, and so we are always walking and holding this tension of being able to, or ideally being able to trust our gut and our intuition and make authentic choices with also still being teachable. And there's a balance because there are many people that will speak from their own place of wounding or will give foul advice. Yeah. Um, and so we have to be able to temper that. And there's a lot of people, especially if they have a skin in, in the game and what you choose, that it's not it's not free. Yeah, it seems <laughs> to me or, like mm -hmm. you you really need to to be mindful. Does this this person either shares my values or knows my values? Mm -hmm. Um because so many times, particularly I think advice with friends is, you know, I ask a friend for advice and they give it to me with their own set of values that are guiding that advice and probably not even understanding my own values. And a lot of people, they're seeking advice and they don't even know their own values. <laughs> they don't even know what's important to them. And they're going to, we're going to take advice from someone who, you know, they can't possibly know what our own values are if we don't know our own. Mm-hmm. So for going to therapy, ideally your therapist, it should not matter if they share your same values or not. They need to be able to put their own experiences and their own values aside and be able to, in a sense, hop into your world and see your life through your eyes. Yeah. And so if somebody decides they're going to try out therapy or sit with a therapist and it feels like the therapist is judging them or is being too explicit about what they ought to do or they they find themselves feeling self-conscious with the therapist that's not a good sign so yeah. yes the therapist should be working through your own worldview speaking of therapists emily how, how can people get in touch with you um well they're welcome to follow me on instagram if they would like to um, I'm Emily Sanders therapy, emily.sanders.therapy on Instagram. They can find me on my website, emilyhsanders.com. Um, I'm on Facebook, just out here living my best life. Yeah, and we, we will put a link it, to that in the show notes and uh, I can sure. attest. That, yeah, uh, definitely follow Emily on Instagram. It's, it, you have amazing content on Instagram. Thanks. 
It matters to me. It scratches my teaching itch. And not everybody can afford therapy. So I hope some someone can find something helpful there. Good. Good. Uh, thank you so much for being with us, Emily. I appreciate it. Good. Thanks for having me. Thank you. My takeaway from her discussion, she said something that really stuck out to me. And that was many times that we know what we need to do. And the part of therapy is figuring out why we're not doing that. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really profound. And I've seen that in in my own financial planning practice. You know, this person knows they should be saving for retirement. The question is, why are they not doing that? I mean, they, they have a calculator. Yeah. Right? They, they know they should. Why are they not? Yeah. And I think that becomes the real question to, to uncover uh, just in my own in my own work that I do. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. My takeaway was one decision that we can make to improve our lives and, and, and really grow within ourselves is to make the bold decision to speak about our issues. Right. Um, she said that the, the biggest step in, in healing is to make a decision to go talk with someone. It doesn't have to be a licensed therapist, although that would be a fantastic place to go. Um, but speaking about it at all is better than holding it within, bottling it up, having it shoot out sideways decades down the road. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. Make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.